James chapter 4, verse 11 and 12 is our text for this morning. This is what James writes. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Let's pause and pray and ask God to teach us. Spirit of God, we invite you to come and to proclaim the gospel to us this morning through this text. We pray that you give us ears to hear and eyes to see the truth that sits before us. We ask it in your name. Amen. So James's command is pretty straightforward. He says, do not slander each other. The word slander is the Greek word kataleo. Uh, it's a, combina- a, a, a compound word. Kata means against. And laleo means to speak. So literally to slander is to speak against. Uh, but of course, James draws not just from the Greek language. He's drawing from a deep Hebrew reality. Uh, and the word slander you'll find numerous times in the Old Testament. Probably chiefly uh, where James is drawing is Leviticus chapter 19. But there are other places. Uh, And slander has a whole kind of reality to it when you consider the Old Testament. Uh, Specifically, it has to do with not telling the truth or or saying something factually untrue about someone or uh, using the truth to demean or to damage someone's reputation, the essence of who they are. So I think in understanding James, we could define the word slander in this way. Slander is speech that aims to damage someone's God-given value and identity. When James says slander, this is what he's talking about. The use of speech to damage the God-given value and identity of a person. Now let's think through this for just a minute and think through some of the implications One of the things we ask ourselves about slander is, does slander have to be public? And at some some level, the answer is yes. It doesn't just happen in your head. Although, I think if we take Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount seriously and apply it across the board, He would suggest to us what is birthed in our heart may as well have already happened. So on some level, we could say we can slander even in our own minds and our hearts. But typically, slander happens in a public setting, often away from the person who we're speaking against, often in a circle of friends or like-minded thinkers in order to demean someone. And as we'll see, uh, almost always, and I guess I I can say this, uh, I'd actually say always, an effort to lift ourselves up while we're demeaning them. Slander is always an identity-based activity. The second thing, and we need to pause and ask this, because there are instances in the Hebrew use of slander. There's several different Hebrew words that can be translated slander. Several, a handful of them have the idea of lying or saying something factually untrue. 
And so you could say at some level that to slander someone means that you have to state something that's not true. And here's what I want to say to that. The answer to that is yes and no, right? It almost always is this way, isn't it? It's no because you can speak the truth about someone in a slanderous way because you're actually speaking something false about them. Here's why the answer is yes. Because slander always goes to God-given identity and value. So even though we might be stating something factually true that happened, our implication or the result of saying it and how we say it cuts at their God-given identity or value. Does this make sense? And so therefore it's false. Kind of get this? This Eastern way of thinking about things that sometimes doesn't fit with our logic. And the last thing that is implied in this definition, and James certainly implies in these two verses, is something we need to think deeply about. And that is, it is God who determines value and identity, not humans. Right? Now, we believe this intellectually, but we live very differently, don't we? We are always assessing value and identity of other people and of ourselves, almost always not in the way that God does. James wants us to remember when we're thinking about this, because he's going to take us deep into the recesses of our hearts as he always does, that identity and value are God-given realities. They are not human-earned, nor are they human-prescribed. And therefore, we need to be very careful when we're making assessments of other people. James tells us that slander does incredible violence to the world around us. And the word he uses for violence, or the word I'm saying he implies violence, is the word judge. That when we slander, we are judging. And he actually suggests we're judging three things when we slander. Uh, We'll take them one after the other because he kind of builds on one as as he takes the elevator down further into the recesses of our heart to attempt to expose where all of this is coming from. He says, when you slander someone, you are necessarily judging them. He's talking about an evil essence of judging. He's talking about ascribing value or identity to someone, either based upon their activities or based upon some presupposed assessment of the collection of their existence. We as human beings are attempting to make a judgment we were never authorized to make. Likewise, and many commentators have suggested this was possibly true in James's context in the first century world that he was writing to, is that his readers were likely setting up unnecessary boundary markers to identify who was in and out of the people of God. Does this make sense? Here's how it would work, something like this. Well, Joe did X. And so there's no way he's a Christian. Does this make sense? Now listen, there are certain things that if you do, you likely are not a Christian, right? If you say, I don't believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus, you're not a Christian, right? But as we well know, because we have all lived in the the corridors of the church for lengthy periods of time, the church is super good at adding to the orthodox boundaries of Christian faith, all kinds of other stuff, right? And it likely was happening in this way too. Well, that person's not a Christian. Or that person's not significant to what we're doing here. 
right? We had to bring in some of those echoes because a major reality of what was going on, we know this, we've already talked about it several times, is looking down on those who were um, more poor or seemed to have less to offer, right? Well, that person's insignificant, doesn't matter. They're making value judgments in a dismissive way about their presence, identity, belonging, and value. But James wants us to remember something significant. That is that every single human being, whether they participate in activities that you condone or that you confront, bear the image of God. Let that rest deeply in your soul this morning. Because we believe that theologically, but we do not live as though we believe it in our heart. We are making judgments on people all the time, in essence saying, God's not in them. And we dismiss people. And James is saying, listen, before you do that, remember that every single human being possesses the image of God. James is speaking specifically then to a gathered group of Christians, right? And so he also wants them to remember not just the the God-given value of humanity, but a God-given identity of people who are part of the people of God. Is that they are sons and daughters of God, inheritors of the kingdom. And it is not our place to say who gets in and who gets out or to make judgments on their value within it. That your brothers and sisters in Christ are equal inheritors of the kingdom of God. Heirs just like you. And in saying all of these things, James is beginning to dig deeper into the the heart of his readers, into our heart, as well, to expose some things. He's exposing the reality of love. Central to being a disciple of Jesus is being a person of love. Jesus himself says that straightforwardly. And James is saying here, where is the love when it comes to slander? Now, many people would say slander is an act that happens in the absence of love, right? And I would say that's uh, patently untrue. Slander is an act that happens because of misplaced love, not the absence of love. That is that we slander because we love ourselves and fail to love our neighbor. Does this make sense? And James is trying to get us to this realization. Now, we need to pause and talk about something. A small, small elephant in the room. Maybe you're thinking about it, maybe you're not. And that is this issue of judging, right? So, what is the Christian's relationship to judging? This is an important question for us to ask together because there are many in the church who would say, we can't judge. And I would say that the Bible actually speaks very differently than that. The Bible calls us to judge. We judge those who hurt us. We judge those who hurt others, and we judge those who hurt the witness of Christ. The Bible is clear on this, and it's not just other writers. It's Jesus himself who talks about these things. So to say that Christians are not meant to judge anyone is actually biblically untrue. What we're not called to judge is someone's value or identity. You see the difference? 
And it's really important that we understand that. But if we are loving someone, sometimes our love actually is meant to move us in an act of judgment. But judgment that happens within a culture and a process of restoration. You see the difference? So that evil judging, as it were, the judging that James is talking about here, is typically acts of vengeance uh, or acts of, of, of power that are attempting to demean or damage someone. Gracious, as I'll call it, or gospel or good judging is an act of humility that attempts to restore someone to their true value and identity. It's really important. And so in this culture and process of restoration, a handful of things are significant. I don't want to take lots of time to to talk about this, but uh, we need to consider it together this morning. The first is that it happens in love. That it's based on love. Love for our neighbor, not love for ourselves. The second thing is that it happens with grace. There's an act of grace. James is very familiar with the Proverbs, and perhaps this is in his mind, uh, if not here, elsewhere. Proverbs 19, this is what it says. It's to a man's glory, to a man or woman's glory, to overlook an offense. Right? This is grace. The writer of Proverbs is telling us, hey, you don't have to respond to everything that happens to you. Like, it's to a man's glory to overlook an offense. Can I put it in layman's terms here? The writer of Proverbs, and I think Jesus himself would echo this very statement, is, hey, grow a little bit of a thicker skin. Right? Come on. Everything's not about you. And every statement doesn't have to be responded to. The first step of grace in responding to something that happens to you is to ask yourself, can I overlook this? And if you can, it's done. It's responded to in grace. But we all know there are instances where we can't, either because we haven't reached a certain maturity uh, in faith, and I don't mean that in a condescending way at all, Uh, or because the nature of what has happened and and, uh, the reality of the person who is doing it demands that uh, that we respond to them. Uh, There was a book I read in college called Bold Love. I think it was uh, Larry Crabb and Dan Allender wrote it, Counselors. Really important stuff in there. Reminding the church that sometimes love calls us into confrontation. There is what uh, some have called in the church, and hear me well, Uh, a culture of niceness, right? That actually isn't love. We're just all living in an external nice way towards each other, but that's not actually love. Now, I'm not suggesting to you we shouldn't be nice to each other. I'm saying sometimes love means asking hard questions of people. And sometimes it means bringing your hurt to them because of what they've done or bringing the ways in which their actions or their choices are doing damage to the witness of Christ in the world. This is significant. This is a means of love. But when we do this, Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 18, 
We always do it privately, that is not to put on a big show, and we do it on the basis of restoration. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 18. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, listen to him, you have won them over. That's the whole point. The whole point isn't to prove to them you're right and they're wrong. The whole point is to restore them to who they are, to living on the basis of their identity. There are times when we are called into this kind of judging. But it always happens on the basis of affirming the value and the identity of humanity and of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so it always happens, as the Apostle Paul says in the book of Ephesians, through truth spoken in love. This is what he says in Ephesians chapter 4. He says, instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of Him who is the head, that is Christ. You get this? That part of our growth towards maturity is being able to speak to each other truth in love. A lot of time, truth in love is really exciting stuff to hear. Every once in a while, truth in love is not such, such exciting words to hear from our brothers and sisters. But it is always pushing us to embrace our true value and identity in the gospel. All right, you get it, right? There's sometimes we're called to judge. That's not James' point, is all, point at all, but we needed to say it so that we don't fall into the trap of just saying, well, everyone lives their own life. They do whatever they need to do. That's not true. James is saying we don't make judgments or assessments on the value and identity of people because when we do, we're judging them in an evil way. But James wants to go deeper than that. He says you're not just judging other people when you slander. You're actually judging the law. Now, there's two ways to view this. The first is James is talking about the whole Old Testament law, right? The, the, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, and then all of Leviticus, all of these things. And I would suggest to you that's Again, yes and no, right? He's not talking about the whole law in that way, but he is talking about the core of the law as Jesus summarizes it. He said earlier in James, uh, James refers to the law as the royal law, the law of King Jesus, the law that gives life and liberty, James calls it. And of course, we know what this is, because Jesus himself says you can summarize the law in these two statements. The first is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. The second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. In essence, Jesus is saying, if you are loving God with all your heart, soul, and mind, that inner and vertical connection will have external and horizontal realities of loving your neighbor as yourself. And James is now saying, listen, if you act in, a, in acts of slander, you're not just judging your neighbor, you're actually judging Jesus' royal law. Now think about this with me for just a minute. When Jesus affirms the law in that way, and when God gives the law holistically, He is not simply trying to create rules and regulations that will make a sustainable society, right? Like, we would be okay, in our country, we would just be okay if we could do that, but we can't even agree on how to do that together. But that's actually not what is the core to what God is trying to do in the Old Testament and Jesus is affirming in His teaching. What the law actually is, is a, a way of embodying the character of God himself. You see this? 
A way of putting God's true character on display for the world to see. This is why the law is so significant. And James is in essence saying, hey, when you choose to slander someone and you judge someone, strictly by doing this in an evil way, you are failing to love them. And so, in essence, you are not a doer of the law, which he's already talked about in chapter 1 of this letter. But you're actually, he says, sitting in judgment on it. Uh, We could translate this as dismissing it. It's insignificant, right? Let me give you a real-life example. Did you guys know that those signs on the side of the road with numbers are actually speed limits? Did you know that was true? I I just found this out recently. Did you know we're actually supposed to follow those? Did you know that? Did you know that was true? Do you know that sometimes, like, uh, in, you're driving down the road and all of a sudden it says 15 on one of those signs and they legitimately want you to do that? Are you anything like me and you're like, well, 15 probably means 30, right? And by 30, I really mean 45, right? And if no one's around, it could be 55. We just kind of dismiss it. Insignificant, Right? If we're telling the truth about our hearts, that's what we think about it. Now, you may follow that, and I would say to you, you're uh, possibly angelic, right? You're <laughs> holy and pure. You, you resist <laughs> temptation. I, I struggle. But now think about that, something, and, and think about even something more trite that we dismiss, right? Now, James is saying, look, you do that with the very essence of the thing Jesus asks you to do. You just dismiss it insignificant. You have judged it as not worthy of something to be followed. And then he goes even further into the recesses of our heart. So you're not just judging your neighbor. You're not just judging Jesus' law. You're actually judging God Himself. We say, whoa! Wait a minute. That's not what we're doing here. And James says, no, it's exactly what you're doing. And here's why. Because if the law is meant to embody the character of God, then in judging the law, we are necessarily judging the lawgiver. Do you see this? And so our dismissal of the law is a dismissal of God himself, not just his uh, request of how we ought to live, but the character, the essence of who he is. And then, if, as if that doesn't cut us deep enough, James goes one step further. And he basically says, and what you're actually trying to do is be God. Let's just get to the heart of the matter, right? He says, listen, God is the lawgiver and the judge. He's the one who's able to save and destroy. Who are you to judge? What is James saying? Why do you think you can play God? That's God's to do, not yours. So what we're doing when we're slandering someone is actually usurping the throne of God. Taking something that is rightfully God's, determining value and identity for people, and making it our own. And attempting to declare it over other people. And now you realize that we are right back to Genesis chapter 3. Remember, the temptation of Satan is, well, God doesn't want you to eat it because he he doesn't want you to to be like him, right? And that's the temptation. 
The temptation for all of us in all that we do that leads to external sin, as we call it in the church, is our attempt to take God's place and act for Him. When we are slandering someone, what we are legitimately saying is, God, your assessment of this person is wrong. And therefore, I will take your place and I'll get it right. And we say, oh. And I would suggest to you, as James has exposed all through this letter, every single act of external sin is an act of internal rebellion to the rule of God. That's why last week James says the first start of repentance is submit to God. (laughs) Admit who He is. Now here's what I want to do. and I hope this isn't awkward for folks. You don't have to do anything out loud. That's not the point of this. But we find ourselves in a unique season of living, do we not? What are we, two plus years into COVID, which has sparked all kinds of opinions, perhaps some slander, perhaps. We are five and a half, six years into an incredibly tense political season. It's given place to all kinds of opinions, maybe some slander. We're in a season uh, external, uh, within and outside of the church that a lot of people are talking about deconstructing their faith. Uh, and it's a complex thing, but a lot of what's happening in deconstructing their faith is not just an internal pursuit of genuine faith, but, but a whole lot of opinions and some level of slander. And it's not just these three things, but they are prevalent in our world. So it seems to me that we'd be remiss to not pause in the midst of a teaching like this. And and I'll just be honest with you, I had to pause every single day this week reading this passage and enter into significant moments of confession for value judgments I've made about people I've never met. For value judgments that I've made about people uh, who I know very well. (laughs) For value judgments I've made about people uh, who live close to me, live far away from me, are in charge of governments, are all kinds of things. No one is saying we have to agree with decisions, with choices. No one is saying we can't speak honestly about what's happening in our world or speak truth, even truth to power. However, the Bible does say we cannot do it in a means to damage identity and value. And so here's what I want to do. James said last week, when you come face to face with the reality that you're adulterous people, again, maybe you've not slandered in the last five years. It's hard for me to believe, but maybe you haven't, right? We come face to face with this. We're adulterous people, in essence, because we're serving ourselves as God rather than God himself. We need to make the value judgments, not God. He says, thank goodness, or thank God, we can actually say that, right? Thank God that he responds to you with, quote, more grace. And we've experienced that. And so how do you you receive that grace in a transformative way? James says, living a continual life of repentance. Remember this? Submit to God, resist the devil, resist the flesh. 
Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands and your heart. Mourn, wail, weep over your sinfulness and then humble yourself before God and He will exalt you. So, I just want to give us one minute. One minute of quiet is going to seem longer than it actually is. But I just want us to be quiet just for a minute. And if the, if the Spirit prompts you in your heart, again, not out loud, just in the quiet of your own heart, maybe it's something to do with COVID. Like Maybe, maybe there's people in this room that you've made judgments on because of mask or not mask, vaccination or not vaccination. Maybe it's politics. You know, for whatever good social media does, the great evil of it is it has um, poured gasoline onto the slander fire, right? It's like what we're supposed to do now. Uh, and this is what James would say last week. You, you, you look more like the world than you do Jesus' people. <laughs> so so we've got we to gotta respond to that, right? So the Holy Spirit pricks your heart, and I want to give you space for that. If not, or if you want to do this as well. This happens all through the scriptures. That the people of God are called to repent for the people of God. Right? Because it may not be something personal for you, but you've seen the church act in irresponsible ways over these last couple of years. Trust me, I know you have because we've talked about it. right? And hopefully not local church, but, but maybe. And so it's right for us to pause and repent for what the church has done as well. So let's take, let's take a minute, we'll, you know, quietly, whatever that means for you. If it's bow your head, if it's close your eyes, if it's just look down, if it thought, just take just a moment and take a posture of submission to God, of resisting the flesh and being honest. Father, would you forgive me for the value judgments I have made about people who I have perceived to be on the wrong side of important societal issues. Father, in this space, we also pause in the model of Daniel and Jeremiah and countless other believers. We we repent for a church that has acted as judge, not in a gospel or gracious way. 
We ask for your forgiveness. Amen. We need to ask one last question. If it is true that God responds to adulterous people with more grace, how does James cue us into that in this particular situation? That is that James says the response to being a slanderous person is the gospel. It always is. It's the gospel for you that leads to the gospel coming from you. Look at how James addresses the people in verse 11. Remember how he addressed them at the beginning of this section? Chapter, chapter 4, verse 4. He said, you adulteresses, right? True or false? True, right? How does he address them here in this moment? He says, my brothers and sisters. Value and identity statement. Do you see it? Why didn't he keep with adulteresses? It would have been perfect to keep going in this way. Because he was confronting an action and is now reaffirming an identity and a value of who they are. And in so doing, saying the way to single-minded maturity, to rise above the depths of slanderous behavior, starts actually with growing in your identity in the gospel. Listen, unless and until you have fully grasped your identity and value demonstrated and won in the gospel, you will continue to be prone to slandering other people. There's no other way around it. Because we slander either to defend or to regain our personal identity and value that we are after building in this world. But we can resist that if we are so compelled and have come to believe that we actually are who God says we are. Because then it doesn't matter. And so James says, grow deep. What's some other words James would use for this? Welcome in the gospel, right? Lower your basket down into the right well, not the wrong well. Embrace the new heart. Live in your new creation way. All these ways James has been talking about, this is what he's saying. Slander comes when we lower the bucket down the wrong well. It comes when we are finding our identity for ourselves. It comes when we are living in this world rather than living as new creation people. But when we fully embrace, and as we grow in fully embracing our God-given value and identity demonstrated and won in the gospel, what actually happens in a deeply transformative way is we stop acting in slander and we start acting in love. Jesus says this, right? John chapter 13. How will they know that you're my disciples? By your love. This is the fruit. Think about it with me. Love that affirms and values and protects and pushes people toward their God-given value and identity. Love that refuses to put unnecessary and semi-religious boundaries around what it means to be a brother and sister in Christ. Oh, you're a Democrat? You're not really a Christian. You're a Republican? 
you can't be a Christian. Are you sure you're a Christian? You didn't get vaccinated. You're not a Christian if you trusted the government and got vaccinated. Be super careful. Love that acts in grace, even willing to overlook the offenses of others. How do you grow a thick skin? It is not behavior modification. It is not callousing yourself up. It is not some American effort of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. You grow a thick skin when you embrace a gospel identity. Because then it doesn't matter. You know who you are. What they're saying is silliness. You can overlook it. And love that when necessary is willing in relationship on the basis of the gospel to come alongside a brother and sister and say, hey, what you're doing in this moment is harming me or others or the witness of Christ. And there's a better way to live because this is who you are. All of those things happen not because I gave you three steps towards it or not because after you go from this place you're going to slander less, but because you are more and more welcoming in the gospel to do the transformative work of giving you a new heart and embracing the new creation life of Jesus that is always manifest in love.